Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March the 17th, 2015. Of course, that means if there's a wee bit of Irish in you, it's St. Patrick's Day. Uh, so go have a green beer on me and uh, if you get a chance today. Anyway, with that, today we are actually going to talk about the education system. And a little bit different tack or a little bit different level look on it than we have in the past. How do we, as individuals, reclaim education in our modern world? What, what are the problems? How can we have an honest discussion about that? How can we admit what the current system does do well or right or perfect for some people and still realize that there's room for improvement outside of that system? Instead of let's tear it apart or let's fix it, how about we just build alternatives and let students figure out and parents figure out what works best for those individuals and for their desires and their needs? Just some thoughts to get your mind going before we take care of our housekeeping. Uh, first up, let's take care of our sponsors as we always do. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's free here five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day, number one, Harvest Eating. Chef Keith Snow has some really cool seasonings, a really great podcast, and a really awesome YouTube channel and a great blog. You should check out HarvestEating.com today if you haven't done so before. He does a lot for our community as well. He serves on the expert council, and there are seasoning mixes and seasoning deals that he has in his store that are specifically for this audience. Um, based on my recommendations on some of the seasonings and based on the stuff that you guys want to buy the most, he's gone out of his way to serve our community at a higher level. So the next time you're thinking about making your food taste a bit better, give Chef Keith Snow a shot at doing that for you. Check him out again over at HarvestEating.com. Next up, herbs of a different kind, Western Botanicals. I always go to the herbal medicine chest before the conventional medicine chest. That's my personal choice. You have to make decisions for yourself. I just believe there's a lot of things that herbs can do for us that are a lot more natural and safer and gentle than even over-the-counter uh, conventional medications. Uh, they're gentler on your kidneys, your liver, your entire body overall. Again, this is something you have to make a decision for yourself about and with your doctor about. But what I can tell you is this. If you're not sure what you're looking for, and you call Western Botanicals, you'll get real people that really care about you, that work right where the herbal preparations are put together, made, and formulated, and they will help you. And that's something that I haven't found in a lot of other places. The other thing you'll get from Western Botanicals is if you call them up and say something like, well, I have cancer. They're going to say, well, you need to go see an oncologist. There might be some things herbs can do to support that therapy, but we're not going to cure your cancer with poppy seeds. They're going to be completely and flatly honest with you. That's something else that's very important to me. So check them out today, westernbotanicals.com. Remember, they actually are one of our biggest supporters, giving away their premium membership with a $50 a year product for only uh, $0 to all members of the Survival Podcast Support Brigade, meeting that one benefit alone effectively pays for your first year of membership in the MSB. Chef Keith Snow will also give you a discount at HarvestEating.com if you're an MSB member. On that, hey, if you're not a member yet, please consider doing so. If your membership's recently expired, consider joining again. I'll tell you what, here's the deal I'll make to you on the air. Off the record, on the air, how do you want to call it? Um, if you currently have an expired membership and you send me in the next three days an email that says TSPC expired, 
I will send you a special discount code that will save you a really good chunk of change on your renewal. If you're military, I'd even do this if you're military. I'm not going to tell you what it is on the air. TSPC expired. And uh, send me your username so I can verify that. And I will email you back a discount code that will save you a real chunk of change to win you back as an MSB member. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and uh, talk about Bombwell's plant of the week. Every week, Bombwell's has one particular plant for us to take a look at. Today's plant of the week is one of my favorites. It's the Phoenix Cheers Goji Berry. It's adaptable from zones 5 to 9, also known as Wolfberry Vine. Their sweet and nutritious berries are eaten fresh, juiced, or dried like raisins. The berries are also a popular medicinal herb, among the highest in protein and antioxidants. They have more carotene than carrots and contain all the essential amino acids and many minerals. That's a lot for a berry to do, isn't it? Grow this attractive Chinese native on a trellis to more than 10 feet tall or trim it to a bush and keep it at 4 to 6 feet. Light purple bell-shaped flowers bloom in May and continue throughout the summer. The third year and thereafter, flowers are followed by orange-red berries. The plant is self-fertile, drought-resistant, likes half the full-day sun and well-drained soil. It prefers warm summer days, cool nights, and prefers natural, uh, neutral to somewhat alkaline soil. And I can say that, in my experience, goji berry don't give a damn about alkaline soil. I got a lot of alkalinity here, and it does fabulous here. It is an awesome plant. The Phoenix Tears variety that Bob sells actually originated from Chinese immigrants who uh, who scattered seed one way or another while building the Transcontinental Railroad. And the gentleman that, that has the Phoenix Tears trademark found plants in the Utah desert uh, and, and began propagating them. And it's, it's an awesome cultivar of the goji berry. Gojis are awesome overall. Get a couple plants established on your property, and if you want more, you'll never have to buy them again, guys. This is one of the easiest plants to propagate from softwood cuttings I've ever seen. You take a nice, ripe, softwood green cutting, green stem cutting off a goji plant, you put it in moist soil, you keep it in the shade, and about a week later, it has roots on it. It's that easy, and it is a fabulous, fabulous plant. Not only can you do all the things that Bob talked about in his Plant of the Week segment for us, but... I'll also tell you the leaves make a tea, and the leaves can either be done as a green tea or fermented to a black tea, and the dried berries are a good tea or a good addition to a tea. One of my favorite teas is dried goji, green goji leaf, blackberry leaf, and mint leaf. That is a fabulous and just a high-potency medicinal tea at the same time. It, it is just absolutely fabulous. Give that a try someday. And sometime this year, I'm going to try fermenting uh, goji leaf and blackberry leaf into black tea and see how that works out as well. Uh, with that, let me do remind you uh, real quick to consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You know, you get a discount from Bob Wells, discount from Harvest Eating, discount from Western Botanicals, discounts to like 40 other, 50 other companies at this point, and you help support the show. So just one more quick reminder, if you've expired recently and you email me about it, I'll get back to you with a special discount code. Just put TSPC expired in there. Uh, let's take a look at the history segment now. The year is 1536. Alex has three on deck for us today. The queen is dead. Long live the queen. The queen is dead again. <laughs> That's all one, by the way. Uh, next is the second act of Henry VIII and the moral hazard of helping the poor. And last but not least, Norway is nowhere. I'm going to read Norway is nowhere, but this is another one of those days where you might want to get over the wiki and uh, do your little history tune-up here. Um, Norway is nowhere. The kingdom of Norway is dissolved. It has been annexed by Denmark. Have a nice day. Ever since Sweden won its independence from Denmark and broke the Kalmar Union, the reason has been unstable. 
King Christian II of Denmark was disposed a few years ago by Riksrode, the Council of the Realm, which is majority Catholic, and replaced him with his uncle Frederick. But Frederick has alarming sympathies with Martin Luther, and his son Christian III is an even bigger Lutheran. A civil war has been raging and finally ends when King Christian marches to Copenhagen. The new king disestablishes all Catholic monasteries like Henry VIII of England has done, sells off their lands and takes their money. <laughs> nice guy. In the past, Norway maintained its borders and institutions as a separate kingdom under two crowns, the crown of Norway and the crown of Denmark, worn by a single person. Now it will be a single kingdom under Christian III. My take by Alex Shrugged. The melding of two kingdoms will never be complete. Passing a law does not erase a border. People still remember where the line was drawn. Norway will be dragged into several ill-considered wars and will not win its independence again until 1905, proving Ronald Reagan's observation that, quote, Freedom is never more than one generation from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them. To do the same, or one day we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in the United States when men were free, end quote. You know, here's my thought on the observations of Ronald Reagan there. He's not my favorite guy in the world or anything, but boy, he had some real poignant quotes. And whether he governed by them or not is debatable, but the, the quotes themselves were often very, very accurate. If you remember Ronald Reagan in the 1980s, If you were of his generation, you're either gone or you're the old man today. And the old men of today can indeed tell us folks in, let's say, the Gen X and tweener generation what it was like to be free men in this country. Many of us watched it erode, but don't really remember it the way that it used to be. Well, it's sad that these words seem so prophetic as to come true. And I think it is one of the problems with Americans. And with most successful groups or nations, we believe that once we have achieved greatness, that our greatness is simply in our genetics or our blood. It is not. American exceptionalism, whether you like it or not, is a myth. American exceptionalism is supposed to be, supposed to be about our system. But our system is not the system that we were handed by our founders. And we have let it fail, proving indeed that we are not the exceptional people that we have led ourselves to believe that we are. We are still waving the foam finger from the 1980 Miracle on Ice Dream Team hockey in the, in the Olympics as though it was yesterday, singing we are the champions. If we are to reclaim our liberty, we are, to ha we are going to have to do it. We're not going to have it done for us. We are not going to fix a broken system. The politicians that have the power will never give it back freely. The corporations that have the power will never give it back freely. It must be seized. It must be taken. And I would hope, as, as a person that would you know be in the middle-aged bracket, that we can depend on the next generation coming up, these millennials and the generation after them. And maybe when we're old men they can sit down and tell us about how they reclaimed freedom with our assistance versus us telling them about the last vestiges of freedom that we witnessed eroded away in our own lifetimes. My take by Jack Spierko. With that, let's talk about one way we can do that, the education system. Um, I am 
going to say what I always say when I talk about this. I'm going to say it one time at the beginning, and after that, if you don't believe it, all I can say is, well, frankly, piss off. Okay? This is not the bashing of teachers. Teachers do not write policy. Politicians do. Administrators no longer even write policy. Politicians do. Okay? That's a reality. Elected officials who are put in office by corporate interests who fund their campaigns and are beholden to the same write the policies in our education systems. And at this point, our teachers barely write lesson plans. They might choose the order in which they do things during a day. They might choose certain little things they do. But in the end, what they will teach, how fast they will move, when they will slow down, when they will speed up, what they will test to is all provided to them. To blame the teacher for the current educational system would be like, I don't know, blaming the carpenter for the current mess that is the building codes that prevent the evolution of better quality housing. It is not the carpenter's fault. It is not the contractor's fault that when you want to build an off-grid house, there's all these hurdles you have to jump through. They didn't do it. They just build it to the code that they're handed. That as much as the teacher is in our current educational system. It really is. And the greatest progression forward in alternative housing has been not made by carpenters who worked with city officials to reform code. It's been made by the renegades who've said, you know what, I don't give a shit. I'm going to go do this my way and try to shut me down. And that's what I think we have to do with our educational system to fix it. I do think that we do have to get past an illogical ideal to have an honest discussion here. And that illogical ideal is the old adage, the teachers are heroes. I'm sorry, I'm not bashing teachers, but... If you teach six and seven year olds their ABCs and one, two, threes, that does not make you a hero. It is extremely noble and it is extremely important work, but it does not make you a hero. That's not to say there might not be some teachers somewhere who are heroic in the way that they teach. They're probably the ones pissing off the system and in danger of being fired, by the way. Okay? Or the teachers that are willing to go into the schools everybody else has walked away from. And change lives. Some of those teachers really exist, but there's far fewer of them than you've been led to believe. Teaching is a profession. Teaching is a job. And at this point, teaching is basically something that a teacher is handed a, man, a manual, a handbook, etc. And said, do this. And that's what they do. It doesn't mean they're bad people. It doesn't mean that what they do isn't difficult. But they are not heroes. They are not a person who throws themselves on a grenade to save other lives. They're not people that run into buildings and carry somebody out on their back through the middle of a fire. And it is impossible to have the discussion of what is wrong in education if, if we look at the teachers as heroes. Because if we do so, this is why it's important, if we do so, any criticism of the system is labeled teacher bashing and seen as unacceptable. Okay? And we, you know, we have to do the same thing with all professions, with soldiers. Do you mean all soldiers aren't heroes? No, all soldiers are not heroes. Many soldiers are heroes. Many soldiers are guys that just do their job. And most real soldiers, most real Marines, most real airmen, most real sailors, if you tell them they're a hero, will say, do not put that shit on me. 
All right? And what we need are teachers to step up and say the same thing. We're not heroes. We do a job. Now, that person over there, that person I strive to be like, that person's my hero. We need to do that in all professions. And trust me, we're going on a series here of reclaiming components of our individuality and components of our community. And we're just starting with education this week. We're going to something different next week. And we're going to piss everybody off before we're done with this. So please accept what I've said because I'm not going to go back and say it again. This is not putting teachers down. This is a realistic assessment of the current system and ways by which we may change it without asking anybody's permission. So let's have an honest discussion about the nature of the problem. The biggest problem with the current system is that schools are a one-size-fits-all solution presented to 50 million children. If you look up the enrollment statistics in America today, from kindergarten up to high school, at any one time, about 50 million students are participating at one of those levels. That's 50 million individuals. We have created a system that allows almost no flexibility. Well, you might have business and, you know, industrial arts and academic and college prep and, you know, stuff like that in high school. But in the end, the system's the same. Every classroom, by and large, looks the same. The learning methodology is the same. The testing methodology is the same. It's uniform for 50 million people. What would you say if I said I came up with uh, a group of clothing that was the same for, for everybody? And everybody needed to use the clothing that I had provided. I had one set of pants, one set of shorts, one type of underwear. I even have it for both sexes. By the way, at school, there's really little delineation between the sexes. There. But I got women's underwear, men's underwear, right? And different things for different people. You know, and women have bras, so I have a bra for all women. It's all the same. Different sizes even, but it's all the same. Same color, same shapes. They're like a uniform. And that's all we need. You'd think I'd lost my mind. That's just clothing. That actually would... It's not right. It's completely unfair. It's, it's, it's not liberty. But it would function. You could literally make one dress, one skirt, one blouse for women, plus a pair of pants, a pair of shorts, etc. Do the same thing for men. One type of shoes, one type of boots... And functionally, people could get along just fine, and no one would no one would stand for that. Okay, education has a hell of a lot more moving parts in it, and to think that every individual is best served by a system that says, "Show up at this time, sit down in your seat, look to the front, do what you're told, work at this speed." I mean, it's it's ridiculous. It's preposterous. I don't need to say any more about it. But it's just, it's absolutely insane that we would ever think one system would fit 50 million people. If you don't believe that, you have a, like an emotional attachment to the idea. And I, and I challenge you to, to look at that emotion and, and look at this logically and think if you would ever accept that for anything other than school. 50 million people all get the same solution. They tried that, by the way. It didn't work. It was called the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. They had all goods and all solutions managed that way. It, it, it collapsed. And the world's better off for it. I'm just saying. Okay, now the next thing I want to point out is, even if we were to hit a home run for 50% of our students, if half the students in school, if you looked at all the different ways we could educate them, were best served by the current model, that means we fail 50%, which is 25 million students a year that we fail. 
I would break it down more like this. I think being very kind to the current system. The current educational system gets an A-plus for 10% of our students. 4.0 GPA, man. I mean, it is just exactly what they need, exactly the way that they need it, and exactly in line with their goals professionally and academically after they leave you know, grade school, middle school, high school. It's perfect for them. Okay, And let's say it gets a B for 20%. So another 20%, so a total of 30% now either get an A or a B. It's not perfect, but it's pretty damn good, and it opens up doors for them. It helps them figure out what they want. Things could be better, but it's, it, I mean, everybody's happy with a B. Okay? Let's say another 20% get a C if we evaluate how it meets their needs. Most teachers would tell you they're not happy when their students have a C average. That's not good enough. It passes. It's mediocrity. And then let's say it gets a D to an F for another 50%. Now, the national GPAs would actually, those numbers pretty much fit, right? If we say it's a D when we go, we go below a 2.5, right? We, we're, we're heading toward the D side of the GPA. Uh, those numbers are pretty accurate. A lot of C students are really D students, but a little finagling and a little kindness here and there, and they're a C average, right? See, but I think that's even being too too generous to the system. And here's why. I was a good student I on paper. I graduated in the top 15% of my class. Um, my SAT scores were damn good. I can spell when I give a shit. If I, if like, okay, I'm gonna take this test. I'll make sure I get this stuff right. No, the CP verbal stuff that was that was doable when I cared. It was like I'm gonna take this one test and get a score, and it'll give me an option to do something if I decide. Okay, fine, I'll do that. Right. Um, but I knew 80% of what I was being taught and forced to learn and told to regurgitate was going to be meaningless to my life. And you might say that a teenager is not qualified to know what he does and does not need to learn. But in my 40s now, looking back, I can tell you I was right. At least 80% of what was covered in school is has no meaning to me now. And you're also assuming that I couldn't have got more of the good stuff, the 20%, from another system. So what if I'd gotten more of that? Maybe I would have moved a little faster in life. The truth is I was a pretty unmotivated individual. It's hard for people that look at what I do now to believe that, but I wasn't motivated as a teenager. There were things that did motivate me, but they were largely lacking in the educational system. So I think that saying we hit a home run for 50% and fail 50% is being way too kind to the current system. But there's plenty of students who get good grades that really would be better off with another opportunity. In fact, many of those students are the ones that would be best suited for other opportunities in education. Um... The next one, and this is what we have to be really honest about, school does not resemble real life at all in any way. There is no place where that many people are forced into that concentrated of a population that routinely for that long. Even when you look at big mega corporations like IBM or Apple or whatever, you're not forced... To cohabitate with 400, 500, 1,000 other students uh, or other employees and intermingle constantly in ways that you would prefer not to. 
When, when I, I've worked for big companies and small companies, and I've never seen any employee treated by other employees the way I've seen students treated by other students from a bullying standpoint. Um, I've never seen anybody at a, a, a job uh, feel like if I don't get invited to so-and-so's party, my life is over. Right? And you can say, well, that's maturity. It's not just maturity. It's situational. One of the biggest objections to, to unschooling, homeschooling, independent learning, whatever, is these kids won't learn to function in real life. School is not real life. Nothing about school is like real life at all. There's no job where you are sat that close to somebody next to you. There's no job where you're given as much oversight as you are in school. There's no job where you're constantly tested at learning stuff that doesn't apply to what you do. There is nothing about school that's like real life. Now, that doesn't mean there's not a place for some level of regimented learning for certain skills that are necessary to further your own learning, such as learning to memorize basic addition and certain rules with how language works. Okay, But it doesn't mean that that needs to be applied across the board to everything. So let's stop lying to our children and telling them that school has anything to do with the life that they're going to live after they leave those doors for the last time, because it does not. I'm not talking about what they might learn and apply. I'm talking about the social interactions of a school do not resemble real life. Things that students do that get them both punished in school in real life would result in one person person being able to sue the other and the other possibly going to jail. But we children will be children crap, all that stuff, okay? Right? And that doesn't mean that we should put kids in jail when they do these things. But it does mean that we shouldn't co-punish when one is clearly the aggressor. And the reality is in a system with 500 students in one grade in one building, that's what you're going to end up with. The institutionalization of learning is the problem. If students weren't forced into being surrounded with four or five, six hundred other people at one time, all with their own attitudes and agendas, these, these social interactions that are forced would become voluntary instead. And a kid that's really a problem and really bullying other kids in any kind of a private school or any kind of a self Uh, arranged uh, learning environment by parents and other children, you just can't. You're going to be that way? You're not welcome here. Goodbye now. Well, don't I get a second chance? Oh, no, no, no. No, you don't get a second chance. You can go somewhere else and find your second chance, and maybe you've learned from this experience until you run out of places to go. Well, then some kids fall through the cracks. See, this is a nirvana fallacy, right? That everything has to be perfect to be good. Letting perfect be the enemy of the good. The current system has millions of students every cycle that fall out. So having the troublemakers pushed to the edge and have to make a choice to either get along with people or find people they can get along with is a better solution even if it's not perfect. right? But we, we, we have to be honest. Stop saying stupid shit, America. School is not like real life. And the social skills in school generally don't apply. Think about someone that comes into an office and acts the way children act in high school. With a click mentality. 
jocks and preps or whatever it is. With the attitude of, I'm better because I'm more popular. How well does that work in the real world? It doesn't. It doesn't. And the reason that kids cry because they didn't get invited to Susie's party or whatever, think their world's over, is we've convinced them that this is what life is all about. And then when they are in this moment, we have this minimal amount of honesty with them and say, this isn't real life, honey. But then we, re, we, we, we give the opposite message 95% of the time. And then we wonder why they don't listen to us. They are listening to the preponderance of what you say, both in word and action and deed, okay? Versus the 5% of the time that you tell them the truth. How about we tell them the truth 95% of the time and push them a little bit with a little bit of a white lie here and there where it's absolutely positively necessary to reason with someone who is not yet capable of, of reasoning at a higher level. Or how about we try 100% honesty? I'm just saying. Maybe we could even do that. The next thing is we have to be honest about this as well. School is now preparing children for jobs that no longer exist. The conformity model of school. Show up, sit in your desk, do the right thing, don't question. I mean, all of the, the, the programming that comes from our educational system is based on a employment paradigm that has morphed like six times since it was initiated. And most of those types of jobs don't exist, and the ones that do are miserable jobs that nobody really wants to do, but you do because it's the only thing you can find. So we're not getting our children ready for new jobs. And it, see, this is the problem. Like, we need to make sure that our children are prepared for the jobs of the 21st century. No, we need to make sure that our children are prepared to gain the type of employment that they will get the most out of. Some will want to program computers. Some will want to work with their hands. Some will want to grow food. And we need to provide an environment that allows children to develop themselves so that they can find what will give them the most meaning out of life. And we're not doing that. The next thing is conformity never leads to innovation. Tell me one innovator who was a conformist. One. I, I, if I have to say more, you don't want to accept this reality. If you have a person who's a conformist, they never innovate. And we need a lot of innovations in the future. So we need to be encouraging innovation. So we need to cease this conformity-based model. And there's a place for conformity. Conformity on a voluntary association. So if I start a learning group and say, this group is for learning about history, it meets from 2 to 4 on Wednesday afternoons. We can accept X amount of people as part of it. This is where we meet. This is what's required. This is the commitment. Then conformity to that is essential if you want to be part of that group. But if you don't want to be part of that group, you should not agree to conform to its standards and requirements. You should go find something that fits your desires and goals. Now, if you start thinking about it that way, you see why it is impossible to fix the current system under its current model. Because doing that alone is impossible. And yet, anybody who, again, you look at that logically versus emotionally and the programming in you, That education is priceless. And school equals education being the, the underlying programming that goes with that message. It's very hard to let go of that. But if you, if you let go of the emotion 
And you look at it logically, there's no way that that's not a better way for some people to learn. So why not let those some people learn that way? The next thing is, formulaic learning doesn't create self-directed learners. If every bit of education is presented as, I am the teacher, I have the information, here's the information, here's how you apply it, here's how you practice it, and I'm going to test you on it, here's a grade. Okay, we've gotten past that section. Let's go back. Now we're going to go to the next chapter in our learning or our next section or our next semester. And here's the information. Here's how you practice it. Here's some work to do. Here's a test. Here's an evaluation. Here's a grade. Now let's go on to the next one. I mean, that is how we teach everything in school. The only place we break that are in certain classes that just require that we don't, like woodshop and art, and etc. Like, you can't... Do that. But math, science, history, etc. It's all done that way. Now, if you put somebody through a system that begins when they're five years old, with pre-K now four years old, and takes them up to the point where they're 17, 18, 19 years of age, and at that point they're expected to take charge of their own learning and activities and, and to take on a, a self-directed learning model going forward into life, and that they are supposed to become successful um, working with others. Because college, even in the current system, college has a lot more of students having to work together. For, we're not even preparing kids for college with this formulaic model, even though it somewhat resembles college. And if we're going to have innovators... We're going to have to have self-directed learners. We're going to have to have people that when they want to learn about something, go find the information and learn. But, see, self-directed learning requires something that even though I know a lot of you guys in this audience struggle with. The fact that you listen to this show tells me you're a self-directed learner because you, you, you might have sought it out initially as some kind of weird entertainment thing with you know, gloom and doom. But if you stuck around, you started to realize there's a lot to learn here. I want to learn. But so many people, and I see it in everything from carpentry to podcasting to business to permaculture, like once they start learning, I gotta learn more, I gotta learn more, I gotta learn more, I gotta learn more. But they don't do shit on the other end of it. Self-directed learning requires that you apply the information in action. Well, formulaic learning says you don't apply the information until such time as I tell you to, and when you do, you do the way I say, and you get a result that's based on my opinion of your efforts. Where self-directed learning says you learn your shit for yourself. You take your own actions. Failures are great because failures result in figuring out what not to do. They lead you to success. And success is judged based on does it make you happy, does it give you something that's profitable or give you a, a, an ability to, to provide for yourself and others? And do others appreciate what you're doing? And, and with self-directed learning, 1% of people can love what you're doing and you can get an A+. Because an A+, is I can pay my bills and I love the life that I have and I can provide for my family. And 1% of people loving what you do and 99% hating it is still an A+. In formulaic learning, somebody a thousand miles away decided the standard to which you would be judged. And if you do not conform to that person's opinion, you get an F. If you conform to it okay enough, you get a C. If you do exactly what they think you should do, you get an A. Now, how can a person come out of that system 
and be a self-directed learner and an innovator and an action-oriented individual. They can't because they're always waiting for someone to tell them what to do next. One of the biggest problems that our millennial generation has isn't an entitlement attitude. They're like, we'll do what we need to do. Tell us what to do. And we're like, you're grown up now. Go, go figure it out. They don't know how. Now, they can figure it out if they want to, and some of them do. But in the end, that's what they're saying. Like, what do I do now? They get a job. Okay, what do I do? Do your job. Somebody tell me what to do. So you tell them what to give them some training, and they're like, okay. And the first time something comes up that they've never encountered before, they, I, I don't know what to do. Go ask a boss. Bosses don't bother me. Go figure it out. It takes them a while to adjust. It's not their fault. It's the system. This system is designed to operate this way. And I mean, the whole thing with Common Core just reinforces this a thousand times over. Let's create a one-size equalization form of education. Let's actually pull down high achievers to the level of mediocre students and make everybody equal by making anything so confusing and complex that everybody hates it, and therefore everybody becomes the same, and therefore we end up with C students getting A's and A students getting D's. Yay, us. Number one. Erica! That's where we're at right now. Formulaic learning cannot work. It is, it is outdated technology. The next thing is teachers do not have control over what they teach. I guarantee you if I got... 22nd grade teachers from North Texas together, various school districts, and said, tell me what you're teaching this year. The, the uniformity would be obscene. And I, if I said, tell me how you're teaching this, the uniform, not just the what, but the how is obscene. Because it doesn't let the individual teacher find their own talent as a teacher and find the passion that led them to want to do this job in the first place and actually teach. And the sad thing is, about half of those teachers, if I said, I will free you to teach the way you want to teach, here's the minimum academic standards. We, like, we're just going to stay in the formulaic learning system. This is what your students need to know by the end. These ten things they need to be able to, to show proficiency in. And you can do it any way you want to. In fact, I'm taking away the manual. I'm taking away the guidance. Go nuts. Half of them would just cheer. And half of them would freak the hell out and not know what to do. And half of that half would quit by the end of the first year. Because they're products of the system too. They're, they're the direct result of the system they're so indoctrinated into. Teachers don't have control over how fast or slow they advance their education for their class. They can't slow down. They can't one day come in and go, does everybody understand this? Yeah? Who doesn't understand? Be honest with me, guys. Who doesn't understand? Okay, okay let's, let's get some of you guys together. Let's get some of the students to really get it. Let's, let's get some learning groups going. Okay, we knocked that out. Okay, look, now everybody's got this at the end of the day. Well, the, the, we're supposed to spend two weeks on this. Well, screw it. If everybody understands this, let's move on to something more advanced. They can't do that. And they also can't pull back and say, you know what, we're going to cover this stuff because this is what people are struggling on. Well, if you do that, they might not get to where they need to be by the end of the year. Let them thro throttle the car. right? If I give you a car and hand you the keys, and I know you're a proficient driver, and I say you need to be in Philadelphia by next Sunday, I'm not going to tell you how fast to drive where, when to take a rest, whatever. Why are we doing this with teachers who are college-educated professionals being asked to teach six- and seven-year-olds you know, the first and second grade? Because academically, shouldn't a student with straight A's in fourth grade be more than academically qualified to teach the second grade? So if we're going to put them through four years of college and all of this additional study and all this additional information, 
Don't you think we should trust them to determine how fast to drive the car when? When to slow it down and when to speed it up? We don't. And we're not going to in the current system. The next thing is, and this is not teachers' fault. This is what teachers have been conditioned to do. Teachers say they want parents involved, but they want parents involved in obedience training, not academics. In other words, when teachers say, we want parents involved, they want the parent, when the kid comes home, to say, do your homework. And when the kid says, well, I'm not sure how to do this, maybe help a little bit here and there. But if you get to a point where the student says, the teacher said to do it this way, and the parent says, oh, here's another way to do it, they don't want that shit. That screws up their whole system, their formulaic system, because you've altered the formula. They don't want a parent sitting down going, yeah, you know, this history saga you're reading here, this isn't really what happened. Here's what really happened, and, and here's the proof that it really happened. Why don't you go talk to your teacher? They want that. But where teachers should be encouraging that. Oh, really? The textbook's inaccurate? It left out these critical issues? Let's discuss that, class, and see what we all think about it. No, 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 no. What teachers say when they want parents involved is they want parents enforcing the educational edicts handed down by the state through them. Again, not because they're evil people, not because they're lazy, because they were taught that way. They were trained that way. See, the funny thing is, when you train people to do something a certain way, in a formulaic way, they tend to replicate it very effectively. This is why mass production of automobiles works. Well, we're teaching our, treating our children like automobiles, putting them through a factory and a formulaic model. There might be some options, heated seats in this one, convertible over here, but in the end, we're still making cars. Ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. Bolt on a wheel, set them to the next level. And then... We also have a system that punishes creative students and creative teachers. If a teacher gets too creative, they're punished. About the only way a teacher can get in trouble is by doing more or being more creative with how they teach the educational doctrine of the state. They can teach the educational doctrine of the state to the letter. They can have half their class fail. And they will still be called a great teacher, and the students will be blamed for being too dumb, and the parents will be blamed for not being involved enough. But should that teacher get truly creative and dig down and bring that half of the class up, that teacher will be ridiculed by the school that they work for. And I've talked to way too many teachers that tell me that's happened. And the only ones that say it doesn't are the ones that are very smart about the way they do it and fly under the radar. They never tell the school what they're doing. They just do it. And for as long as they get away with it, they look great. But as soon as somebody complains, as soon as somebody's challenged and goes home and says, Mom, the teacher said, and that parent bitches, that teacher comes under reprimand. It's an unfair system to the teacher and the student. And to put the problem in the hands of parents... The biggest problem we have with schools today that's parent-oriented is we see the schools as state-provided daycare. I pay my property taxes or I pay it through my rent from somebody else's property taxes, and my kid's supposed to get an education and looked after. Nothing's supposed to happen to them. They're supposed to be obedient. They're supposed to come home when they're supposed to. They're supposed to be picked up by a bus, dropped off, whatever it is. We see the school system as a child care service. And we get offended if we have too many snow days because, gee, I have to deal with my own kid now. And when you actually talk about getting rid of the current educational system and you make an argument so concise and so logical and so well thought out that everything that you say is verifiable, because I've done it before, 
actionable and workable, the last-ditch problem that people find with is, well, what are parents going to do if their kids don't go to school? Yeah, that's our problem. That's a problem we need to solve, not the state. Because if you ask the state to solve your problem, you probably won't like the solution they give you. So those are the biggest problems in education I see today. So let's move on to the solution, because I don't like to do problems without solutions. So number one, stop trying to repair 1880s technology. This is an 1860s, 1870s, 1880s technology. This is a, a Prussian model designed to do exactly what it's doing. And I want you to think of one piece of technology from 1880 that we still use today. It's There might be one or two. But it's very hard. Anybody use a slide rule or abacus, old school cash register lately? Right? Uh... How about a sextant? <laughs> it still works, but it's not what we use. We use GPS now, for God's sakes. Why? Because we have GPSs, and they're better. They're easier to teach somebody how to use. It doesn't mean there's no value in knowing how to use a sextant. And a compass for navigation. But if I'm getting on a cruise ship, I want it to have the latest technology. So, why do we think it makes sense to try to repair a technology that's over a hundred years old when every other technology has gone through 10, 15 generations of upgrades and improvements since over that period of time. Just look at the technology innovation since 1980s. When I was a kid, nobody at my station in life owned a cell phone or a pager. Computers were pretty pathetic. In school, when I went to computer class, we learned basic commands. Line 10, line 20, line 30. To, to, to write a program that was basically a calculator. To learn the basic systems of it. We played video games. Look at what computers do today. That's from 1980 to 2015. Why are we trying to, to retrofit 1880 technology on a generation of children who've grown up with smartphones in their hands. This doesn't make any sense. Instead of saying children can't bring smartphones to school, we should be requiring it. Next, on some levels we should go further back in time, emulate the 1850s and prior teacher-student model with students teaching other students. Where once the fifth graders got their shit straight, they were all in a row together, and behind them were the fourth graders, and they said, turn around and tell the fourth grader how to do what you just learned. And so on and so forth. And send it all the way back down and all the way back up. Why? I'll tell you why. If I tell you something, and we say your propensity, actually, let's look at it this way. If you read something, and your propensity to remember it is a factor of one, If you read it and then I explain it to you verbally with analogy, your propensity to be able to remember it and use it again goes up by a factor of 10. If you then apply it even one time, the propensity for you to remember it, be able to recall it, and use it in the future goes up by another factor of 10. But if I have you now take what you've heard, take what you've read, take what you've practiced, take what you have applied, 
and teach it to someone else, it goes up by yet another factor of 10. So every time we take someone and put them into the role of teaching, they learn. And they learn at a higher level than they could ever learn from by being taught. You learn more by teaching than by being taught. But we've created this spooky, amazing world where a teacher that's going to teach a kid A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and how to sound out the word dog, has gone through four years of university studies. Only te So we can't have students teaching each other in the current system. That would be anarchy. Yeah, you know, it actually would, in a very, very positive way. But up until this Prussian model was installed, the one-room schoolhouses that had all the grades in one place operated that way. Students taught each other, not because the teacher was lazy, but because it caused them to learn at a higher level. And for, and, and you, well, what if the, the student teaches the other student wrong? Well, the teacher's there to evaluate the learning, not necessarily always to provide it. The next thing is we need to ignore all rules and only comply with laws when we have to. Like, there's a lot of rules about school that aren't really rules. They, we just, they're in our head as rules. Like, you have to do this and you have to. No, you don't. You don't have to do shit. Unless there's a law that says if you don't do it, you're going to be fined or go to jail. It is not really a rule, so ignore it. That doesn't mean don't do it. It means ignore it. So if, you know, there's a rule that says you're supposed to do something, and your natural actions lead you to do it anyway, well, that's fine. But don't do it just because someone says you have to or someone says everyone does it that way. That doesn't lead to innovation. Don't not do it in spite of it. That's stupidity. Okay? That's, that's really absolute stupidity. And laws we should only comply with where we have to. If there's any way around, over, through, or under a law that's impeding our progress... We should fail to comply with the law. Absolutely. And we should do it at such numbers, with such efficiency, and such positive results that it becomes impossible to enforce the law. Like this is again, I am I have moved past revolution thinking to insurrectionist thinking. I no longer think that revolution makes sense because I see a revolution as a change in power where the revolutionaries take the power from one group of leaders and hand them to another. I see an insurrection is where the insurrectionists themselves claim the power for themselves. And, and that's where I want to go with this. So that means we cannot be locked down by a system that is a failure. We must simply create a new system and step into it. And that doesn't mean that we're stupid about it. We have to be smart about it. But I think we're capable of that. The next, we can no longer afford to engage in emotional arguments about this issue or any of these other issues. If someone is in an emotional state when they're trying to defend the current educational paradigm, we need to just say, you know what? At this point, you're talking on emotion. Oh, please think of the children. I am with logic. And since you're now in an emotional state, we can't have a discussion. And the funny thing is, the people that are involved in these emotional debates, they're the ones most likely to help create change. And believe it or not, that is the best way to get to a logical discussion. An open, logical, meaningful discussion is to simply say, I refuse to engage with you on emotion. I will gladly have a logical discussion with you. 
And the first attempt will not work. Well, I can do that. And I'll, okay, we're still engaging in emotion. So let me know when you want to have a logical discussion about this. Or the most powerful word in sales and marketing is no. And we need to, to disengage from the emotional debate about this. Because this is not something that gets solved with emotion. This is something that gets worse when emotion is applied to it. If the current system is on fire, emotional responses and decisions are gasoline. Stop pouring it on. And if somebody else wants to pour it on, don't fan the flames while they do it. Just step back. The next thing is we need to identify the real opportunities in the coming decades with an S. What are the real opportunities? Let's be honest about all the jobs that are going to go away. And what are they going to be replaced with? And we need to be building educational framework for those opportunities. And we don't need to be saying, like, everybody should do an education framework that fits one of these five best things. What are you saying? These are all the things in the wardrobe that are going to be important in the next 50 years. And here's all the different ways you can prepare yourself for them. Now, begin a path and adapt and overcome and change as you discover for yourself what your true life calling and passion and desire and profession of choice really is. And if a person wants to change that path at 30, God bless them. I did it, and I'm, I probably, I'm probably not going to have a heart attack before age 50 because I did. I, I, I think one of the most astute things ever said on the show was by a gentleman who was unschooled and unschooled his, his children, and he said he quit school. And I said, well, what did, what did you say when people call you a quitter? I don't remember his name, but he said, I'm always for quitting things that are destroying your life. And that is a very enlightened way to look at this issue. We also need to create intergenerational learning communities. We need elders teaching our children, not just dump the kids at grandpa's. Do you know how many elderly people there are approaching retirement that need something meaningful to do? I would much rather them sit down for an hour twice a week with a group of young children who want to know more about history by talking to someone that experienced it than saying, hello, welcome to Walmart. Wouldn't you? How much more fulfilling might their lives be? How much better prepared might our children be? Is it that hard to organize and, and, and set up? I don't think that it is. We need 50-year-olds teaching 5-year-olds. And we need 5-year-olds teaching 50-year-olds. And it can go both ways. Because kids still know how to have fun, and we've forgotten. Kids know how to not be afraid of something new. And adults know how to not be afraid of something that isn't real. That alone is something that needs to be more exchanged between the generations. And with the platforms we have today, that can be done. That can be enabled. There's no reason that a thousand high school students who want a career in business couldn't be listening to a lecture at the exact same time with a person who built a company from the ground up that has adapted to modern technology, even though that person's in her 60s or 70s now. So why aren't we doing it? We also need to really develop systems that focus on actionable knowledge first. If I'm teaching you something that's not ever going to be directly applicable to what you do, it needs to go second. First level education needs to be about actionable information. Things that allow people to actually 
create a business or start a job or run a farm or whatever it is that they want to do. And then we need to take everything else, the soft knowledge, philosophy, right, 18th century French literature, whatever it is, And we need to allow students to truly choose, not through some elective inside a formulaic system, but let's encourage that. Let's discuss that. Let's get groups deciding what we're going to learn next together. They might actually be excited about it then. And the thing is, if you start doing that, you learn reading, you learn writing, you learn basic scientific principles from all of those things. Because as soon as you start to read poetry and start to tear it apart, you start to learn the English language at a higher level. As soon as you start to study history, you start to learn about science. Because the entire advancement of history has been through scientific methodology. Don't be afraid to learn differently than you've been conditioned to believe you have to learn. Let go of the fear. Next, stop feeding the beast. If you are a parent with children of school age and you have any alternative that seems to be right for your children other than public education, take it. Consider that it's worth your children's futures to do so. If you have children who are perfectly suitable to public education as it sits, and I believe 10 to 20% of students are, that's fine. But if you're the rest of us, Consider withdrawing from that system. Take your kids out of these schools. And I would prefer that you come up with self-directed learning programs, you get involved with homeschool groups, you do whatever it is. But if, if the choice is either that, either public school or private school, I would even say that usually works out better. Now you might be surprised how many private schools there are that are a lot more affordable than you think they are if you look. If you start looking at different churches and things like that. There's a lot of private education out there that's not as expensive as you might believe that it is. And the more people that partake of it, the more people will go into the business, so to speak. Now, the state is making that more and more difficult, and I think it is a stopgap measure. But understand that you feed the public education system beast in two ways. One is solely by your payment of property taxes. But the individual schools and districts acquire their funds based on how many butts they put in seats. That's why they've come up with these ridiculous attendance requirements and things like that. And if you're absent for more than two days, you need a doctor's note. You know what? Horse shit. If I want to take my kid on a, on a self-directed field trip and pull him out of school for a few days, I don't need to explain to you. And you know what? When a push comes to shove, I did it. There's nothing they can do about it. But they try to do these things To, to generate enough asses in the seat so it's about money. So your child becomes a dollar sign to the administrators that run your school. And their attendance is more about how much money they get from the state this year than whether or not your student gets the best education suited to them. Because it's not because they're evil bastards. It's because the system's built that way now. Everything in government works this way. If you don't spend all the money that we give you this year, you get less next year. And we, we primarily base our decisions about how much money to give you based on how many people you oversee, educate, control, etc. So it's all about body count. Efficiency is punished. Efficiency is punished. If a school were to get to the end of their budget cycle and say we have a $2 million surplus, we would like to invest it in a pant. Wrong answer. You're giving it back. It's being redistributed. You don't need it, clearly. How asinine is that? 
if I'm running a division and a principal of a big school is like a CEO of a, a corporate division, right? If I'm doing that in the corporate world and I get to the end of the year and I go before the, the, the corporate board of directors and say, by leading out these efficiencies and doing this and this, we were able to increase sales and do this and do that and get greater efficiency in our operational production, and we now have a $2 million surplus for our department. Some big, giant, Goliath-like organizations might reassume that money. But in general, if you've done that and you say, we believe that we can invest that money in our division and do the following things to produce more. You've earned the credibility by developing the surplus. The people that run the organization are probably likely to say, you know what, that's awesome. First of all, here's a bonus. Good job. Second of all, yes, as long as everything you have planned to do with this revenue makes sense, you generated it. We trust that it will generate more. Surplus is profit. We like that. In a school, it's treated exactly the opposite. What? You didn't, you wasted this two million dollars. Whatever will we do now? It never happens because the schools always spend a little bit more than they have just to make sure. Yay. This is the system that we're, we're, we're propping up. So we need to stop feeding it. And the primary way that you feed it is by sending your kids there. Take them out. Take them out. Stop contributing to anything. That, that furthers a failing system. And leave it to those that it works for. Because here's the good news. If it works for 10%, they only need 10% of the money to educate that 10% of the student body, and the rest of us can go do something else. And if it only, if it only works for 25%, then they only need 25% of the money. See, schools and educators, etc., and administrators and politicians try to argue their way around that. But we know scalability models work. And we know that if you can do X for Y and I reduce X by 70%, you only need 70% of Y to accomplish 70% of X at any model of significant scale. And when you get into the millions, and you're still talking millions left with those numbers, there's significant scale, the model works, shut up and keep what you have. And I think the real fear of those in power is if you build these other systems, it won't be 25% left behind. It probably won't be 10. It might be zero in the end. You might reach a point where the system crumbles upon itself. In fact, I think we're headed there. It's just a matter of how fast we get there, how intelligently we get there, and how well we take care of our children, how prepared we are for it as we move forward. Um, I also think we need to create our own certifications and standards bodies. That we should say, you know, you got a, you got an A in history. What does that mean? What? You got an A in history. I don't care. But if I had a certification that said, based on your historical knowledge that you've demonstrated here, you have a contextual framework that allows you to be valuable to my organization. Huh. I care about that. We need to start designing what constitutes a pass as being something that's applicable either to that you can present to an employer and the employer goes I know what I'm getting now, okay? And or allows the person to start taking actions to further their own life independently. And we need our own certifications and standards, standards bodies for that. And we don't need to ask for any permission, we just need to do it. 
We also need to do everything we can for as low of a price as possible. And we can. In the beginning, things have to cost more because people have to actually provide livelihoods for themselves. But the educational model put into the cloud, the cloud-based education model, is infinitely scalable. And over time, as the number of people partaking in something goes up, basic scaling market, market information tells us we should be able to reduce the price. This is why you can get some of the most advanced technology in the world today for one-day average wages for a human being. Where was half a year's wages to get a computer that was pathetic in comparison in the 1960s? Because the more demand there is, the greater scale you have and the lower cost per unit you can deliver. And that's even true with hard goods. If we create educational models that are soft market information products, their price can go down over time. So we need to make these educational platforms as accessible and inexpensive as possible. And the good news is we only have to be 50% the cost of the state to be an extremely viable alternative. And we can do much better than that. The next thing we need to do is we do need to recognize truly talented teachers and offer them a seat at the table in, in this, this environment. I mean... If we can develop the technology to take the best teacher and put them in front of 5,000 versus 30 students, and every one of those students can account for $1 in revenue for that teacher per month, that's $60,000 a year now, isn't it? It doesn't take Common Core Math to figure that out. That's for one class, maybe once a week. And what we need are the technological innovators working side-by-side side with the innovative educators to develop these platforms. And understand, that's the kind of money that we're talking about. Now, I don't know, I'm not Common Core math-oriented or anything, but if, if a teacher could make $60,000 a year teaching one class a week, then I, I would think that if they're really talented, they could make about a quarter million dollars teaching four. doesn't seem like that hard of a job to do, does it? Certainly seems like more people that are really good would want that job. Now the truth is, though, we'd need a lot less teachers, wouldn't we? And this is where the resistance will come. Those that know they're not that good will resist this wholeheartedly because they don't want to see their system that's, that's guaranteed them a retirement and health care benefits for the rest of their life dismantled. I got bad news for you. It's falling apart anyway. And every day people are more aware of the alternatives. And you can't stop this. This is, a, this is now a, a train with the steam box fully loaded, headed down tracks that lead directly away from the old paradigm. The next thing we need to do is understand that's exactly what's going on and get on board. Like, we all need to realize that, like, one way or another, this is the future. Because the train's leaving with or without you. The train's leaving with or without your kids. 20 years from now, you will not recognize the educational paradigm in this nation. People will look back at the way we educated students for over 100 years and go, wow, that was really stupid. That was weird. Why did we ever do that? And when they examine it, they'll say, okay, I understand why we did it in like 1880. Why did we do that in 1995? Why were we doing that? Why were we putting computers into the classroom 
instead of putting the classroom into computers by 1995. That's what they'll be asking. And it's happening. And you can see it. This is one of those futuristic things that I've been talking about for years now that we constantly see more and more evidence of the progression of it going forward. From nano degrees to public schools going, yeah, you want to homeschool? Here's our curriculum online. You know what that is? White flag of surrender, people. That's what that is. We got to figure out some way to keep them attached to our institution, some way to keep them on our sinking ship, some way to extract some level of money from this parasitic system to support our bureaucracy. Shit. They're leaving in droves. Let's do this. Because you have to understand what droves is to the public education system. 2%, 3%. If you are an administrator over a large school district and you're losing 2% to 3% of your student body per year of what's available, you are in a catastrophic downfall. You're looking at an extinction event. Oh, it's only 2% to 3%. Oh, It's, it's a cascading effect. And you know it, even when you want to deny it, even when you want to go to normalcy bias, you know in your heart what, what that means. You realize that, that you're a decade away from obsolescence at that point. So how can, I, how can I kick the can a little bit and at least get to where I'll retire before this all falls apart? I know. We'll get homeschoolers to teach our bullshit in their homes. Again, That's revolutionist thinking. That was the opportunity that the people in power had in the 1990s. They didn't surrender. It's too late to surrender. Now the insurrection is on. Now the insurrection is, we don't really need you for that. Please, we're relevant. Pay attention to us. Look, we have all this math stuff. You can, oh, well, Khan Academy does better than you at that. We have Common Core. Well, I don't know if I want that or not, but Khan Academy has that if I want it. Maybe I don't even want Khan Academy, though. This guy over here, like, he's really interesting. My kids like listening to him. They're learning math. I don't know because they like this guy. I like this guy. Maybe I'll learn with them. I don't think I need you anymore. Next, we need to know and accept that education is about learning, not teaching. We've made the educational process about the teacher versus the student. We've made the teacher necessary to learning. That is, that is just simply not the way things work. Kids today have a question. They ask you. You don't know. They hit Google up. Two days later, they're an expert on something you don't know. Who taught them? What teacher taught them that? They took computers and put them in villages in India where none of the kids spoke English. They just left them there. All the stuff on the computer was in English. They came back a year later, the kids knew English and were asking for better processors than RAM. Who taught them? They learned. There was no teacher. Now they taught each other, but they were learning as equals. This, this is a successful system. And we can build more and more and more of those if we, if we realize that education is more about learning than teaching. And that actually empowers students to be self-directed, innovative learners. Teachers in the educational process are to be guides. And they're also on some levels to be judges, like to be able to use their, their, their knowledge that's at a higher level to look at what's coming from the student and determine whether or not the student's got it right. 
and I say, this is where you're missing it. Let me help you adjust that. But what we've made education about is all about teaching, which means education is all about shoving information in and expecting a regurgitation in the formula that it was given. And that is not education. That is memorization. And most of what we're doing in our educational system today is that. It is teacher-led memorization versus learning. And it's not, again, it's not the teacher's fault. It's the system's fault. System's flawed. Try to prevent a child from learning about something they have interest in if you give them access to the information. I, I, I challenge you to do that. Tell a kid that, that says, oh, I'm interested in how video games are programmed. And say, well, you're not allowed. You're not allowed to know. Don't you use Google to find out. Ask them six months later. They're probably programming games. God knows what they'll program next if you let them program games first. We'll see programming is a valid skill, but programming games, oh, it's only a freaking multi-billion dollar industry. It's not like there's any opportunities there or anything. You know, you're probably a lot more likely today to become independently wealthy as a programmer than as a lawyer. I'm just saying. We have to accept that education is about learning, not teaching. And we should also accept that almost every problem we have in our current education systems are eliminated by removing the state. And I mean some really sensitive, socio-political, personal issue problems. So think about kids being bullied. Take the state out, let people run their own educational groups. What happens to bullies? First, they're given corrective action. Second, they're eliminated from the system. You don't do that here. Bye-bye. But I have rights. No, you have no rights here. This is not a state institution. This is a voluntary association of individuals that have come together for the purpose of learning. You don't seem to be interested in that, so you can go find another group and beg them to let you in. Or you can learn on your own. How quick is that problem solved? How many kids are you going to have really being pushed around and bullied with that model being enacted? It's simple, and it's also the real world. Again, there's no real world in education today. There's no job where you can treat another employee that way. You can't do it on the street. You can't do it in a restaurant. Whether you're a patron or a waiter, it doesn't matter. You can't do it at a bus stop. Like, look at the stuff that goes on at bus stops. Kids waiting for the bus to go to school. And try that shit at a bus stop in the real world. It doesn't happen. And when it does, it's not acceptable. It's not just part of what goes on. So that problem goes away. What about this? Well, I want my child to learn that God created everything. Okay, then pick a learning group that delves into and explores that. I don't want my child learning that. I want them learning evolution. Okay, pick a learning group and an option that teaches them that. I want my child to learn intelligent design. Fine, pick one that does that. I want my child to learn all three, pure evolution, intelligent design, creationism, and develop their own theories going forward in their own lives and make their own decisions and choices and be fully informed. Even if I gravitate to one, if they're going to be able to defend that position, they should understand the other side's view. Fine. Find a group that does that. Or find one group that does each of the three and send them to all of them. 
I don't want my children learning about condoms in school. Fine, send them to a place where they don't. I want them to know about safe sex. Send them to a place where they learn that. Or talk to them yourself about it. I want this. Go to where that is. I don't want that. Don't go where that is. I want my children learning the highest level of math possible because based on what I see, they're capable of doing it. Go where that is. I want my children getting a classic education system that's well-rounded. Go where that is. Why do you need to force my child to be educated the way you want your child educated? Why can't you have the education you want and your child wants, and why can't I have the education I want and my child wants? Do you know what we call that? Anarchism. Again, anarchism is not the absence of rules. It's not the absence of systems. It's the absence of a state. And it's not all or nothing. We could have an anarchist education system and still have a state that does other shit. It gets out of the way. We can even have the option. You want a state education system? Well, as long as it survives in its current form, knock yourself out. Just don't compel me to participate in that system. If your idea is better than all of these other ideas then why do you fear these other ideas being given equal footing with your own? The answer is because you're afraid. It's not the case. You want your agenda, and understand this, you want your agenda forwarded. I want my agenda forwarded. It takes a certain level of maturity and confidence and reasonable attitude to say, I want to forward my agenda based on its own merits, and I don't want to compel anybody to be part of it that doesn't want to be. And hence, I understand that it is incumbent upon me not to either be uh, forced to participate in somebody else's, but also not to directly interfere with their agenda. If they want to do that, I am fine right up until the point they compel my participation. We need to build an education system based on that model. You know, when people say, well, anarchism can't work because who would do X or who would do Y? Okay, let's look at it this way. Where can it work? And I can't think of a single compelling reason that this model can't work to completely retool the entire education system. In fact, to not even have an education system, but an education environment. So... For now, you can keep you know worrying about how we're going to build the roads without it, and yeah, you can, you can keep doing that, even though it's extremely wasteful and extreme amounts of taxpayer money taken through coercion are are used to to do things that take way too long, cost way too much money to do. That's we can we'll figure that out later, but right now, can't we do this? And can't we resist every attempt the state makes to make it hard by just doing it? I'll tell you what, even in a state that basically makes homeschooling almost impossible, if over the next two years a half a million parents say, you know what, that's what I'm doing, they can't stop it. They can't stop it. It's an insurrection. A revolution has a leader. You kill the leader, it's done. An insurrection is a movement. It's an idea. And that's where I want to see my nation move towards. However, I don't want laws passed 
are necessarily individually repealed to further my agenda. I simply want to be left alone to put the idea out there and see who wants to take it and run with it and encourage that. And I think that I am probably one of the least qualified to do this. I think there are people so much more qualified to do these things than me. I have so many other things I'm doing that I'm really good at. And this is my way of teaching, my way of enlightening, my way of creating entrepreneurs, my way of creating self-directed learners. I want to see other people do what I'm doing and do it better and do it different. I want to see some, you know, people say, why don't you make a podcast, or your podcast not have curse words in it, so that my five-year-old can listen to it. Why don't you go make a podcast for five-year-olds and leave me the hell alone? Stop sending me, I won't listen to you if you continue to use words like shit and ass. Why don't you go make a podcast that doesn't use those words? Why don't you go make a podcast that is tailor-made to the audience you're so concerned about? I won't stop you. If you do a good job, I'll even tell people you're doing it. And this is the spirit we all need to have to solve this problem. We cannot be in competition. We must be in cooperation. We can cooperate with the people we differ with. You might wonder how that's possible because you grew up in a society that tells you that's impossible. If I value your rights as equal to mine, then I have to get out of your way to allow you to have the rights that you have and to live the life that you want without interfering with it, again, until the point where you interfere with mine. That's so simple. And that means I can totally disagree with you. You can set up an education model like this based on the Holy Bible, which I don't believe. <gasps> really? Yeah, I don't. But you do. Totally okay with it. Awesome. You will probably do, see, like, you'll say, well, what about evolution? Kids will learn about evolution on their own on the internet and be, be able to determine how it justifies or doesn't justify with your faith. I'm okay with that. My belief is, regardless of whether your program would be perfect or not, I'm not going to participate in the Nirvana fallacy. I think that your program would probably be about a hundred times better than the basic public education system model that we have right now especially if it was cloud-based and interactive and people could participate in parts of it, but not all of it, or even if you had an all-or-nothing program, well, you're only going to get the participation level of people that want to go with you because you can't compel them to go with you, and therefore the problem, if there is one, over time is self-correcting. Your, your program is either proven valid and effective or invalid or effective for certain people in certain situations who become your base of community. I'm okay with that. And if somebody else wants to say, I am putting together a curriculum that is based on an atheistic viewpoint, solely based on logic and totally ruling out anything supernatural, anything spiritual at all, the end period, I'm okay with them. And if I have somebody that says, we have a balanced approach that believes there's some level of spirit and connectivity, that physics tells us this, that there's this realm of that's not understood, And there's much to be learned without even practicing religion, but by looking to the wisdom that comes from the different world religions. And that the atheistic scientist has a valid point as well. And we want to take a balance-centric approach to that. I'm okay with that. You can do all of it. And you can do a hundred other things. I don't give a shit anymore. And the thing is, if you'll let go of emotion and go to solely logic and realize that all of those things would exist without somebody extracting your 
tax dollars to further them against your will and to do that which you do not want done, you'd probably be okay with them too. The reason you have a moral outrage about schools doing things that you don't want done is because your time, talent, and energy has been taken to further that agenda. It is not the other person's agenda that really concerns you. It's their ability to interfere with your own. And it's their ability to use your resources to further their agenda. Now, there are closed-minded people. I hate gay people or whatever, okay? Those are such a small segment of society, and I want you to know this. The, 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 the people who are devoutly anti-gay today, right? They shouldn't get married. They this, they that, whatever, right? Okay? In 25 years, history will judge you the way that we judge the racists of 50 years ago. I promise you it will happen. Trust me. And sometimes I think that's what people fear. That we would all accept each other as equals. That would be horrible. Because my belief says that this is not equivalent. Well, I'm not asking you to sanction it. I'm asking you to step the hell out of the way of it. That's the education system we need to build. I don't want you to sanction my version of education. I want you to sanction your own version of education. I want you to provide the resources for people that fit what you want to do. And I want us to provide a republic model of education. You can go to Florida for this. You can go to Georgia for that. Florida's got great oranges. Georgia's got great peaches. Right? And the best business environment might be Texas. So I might create a business that's built on oranges and peaches, but the corporate headquarters are in Texas. Welcome to the Republic. The Republic, in many ways, is a structured anarchy when run properly. Especially if we broke the Republic down to sub-republics, if each county acted as its own Republic. In fact, I would tell you, the aristocracy of the day viewed the formation of a Republic of the United States of America as... An anarchy. I guarantee you King George used the word anarchy to describe the actions of the colonists. One last thing to think about there as we wrap up today. So I hope this is actionable. I want everybody out there to develop some level of an educational program for other people. I don't care if it's one YouTube video that says this is how you change the oil in your car. I don't care if it's one article that says this is how you program a computer to do XYZ. I don't care. If every person out there put out one small seat of education, every person, not just the people already doing it, every person, then we'd have hundreds of millions of new valid forms of education. And there's plenty of innovators out there that can create aggregation models to pull that information together and make it more powerful. And then there's a platform that individuals who want to take a more active role can step up and use all of these things. To be honest with you, there's some, there's some presentations that I made back in my marketing days that a guy that teaches master's level marketing courses is using at University of Texas to teach his master's students marketing for the future. Because in his own words, there's nothing in my textbooks that explains this to these people. If that can happen there, why can't it happen in your living room? And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. 
helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Revolution is you.